Yeah, I mean, well, one way is that in a lot of markets, you can sort of buy your way to more share. So this shows up in things like having to discount on pricing more. So this shows up in our auto instrument. Like you can tell which companies, in a sense, have to discount the cars to grow and which ones don't. And so if you're looking at traditional metrics like share, if you're not taking into account the pricing dynamics, you're sort of missing the big story. There are sort of more, there are ways to more profitable growth. And this is why we always talk about profitable growth instead of just growth. Because a lot of the times what you can do is you can sort of mask your way to share. If you're a cable company, you can be continually giving price discounts to your customers to have them not quit you and sort of get caught in a constant loop of you know, offering price rebates, hoping that eventually you'll be able to get prices back up to where they're supposed to be, but you never make it. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I empower clients to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I help my clients achieve business outcomes by designing and delivering superior customer experiences. Hey, if you're new to the show, this is where we share practical tips, actionable insights, and the CX secret sauce to empower leaders to delight their customers. If after listening to today's show, you would like to learn more about how I can help you achieve your goals, visit my website at empoweredcx.com. Well, I am so excited to have my guest on the show, who is a partner and the founder of the NPS Prism business at Bain. Welcome to the show, Jason Barrow. Thank you so much for having me on, Mark. Excited what, to do this. Oh, what a privilege for me and what fun we're going to have talking about your new venture and what it means to organizations that are trying to drive customer-driven growth um, and how it all fits in. And let me start first by by sharing with the audience a little bit about how you got to be in the role you're in and what actually it is that you do, what you do. Yeah, happy to do that. So I've I've been at Bain about 20 years now, so it's been a long time. And I've spent almost all of that time in our customer strategy practice. So I've been helping organizations across a wide variety of industries. So I've done this work for banks and insurance companies and retail and healthcare and telco, but help those companies both figure out how their customers feel about them and why and then how to drive change. How do they fix things? How do they invent new things? And so we call that customer experience transformation work. And I have been doing that for a really long time across lots of different places. And as part of that work, we had been developing for many years um, what types of data, what types of fact bases organizations typically require in order to be able to make the types of decisions that they need to make during the customer experience work. And we started to build, first of all, we found that the type of data and and it's type of data that helps both tell companies clearly where they really stand with respect to customer experience, but then to be able to both say how much it's worth to be in a better place. So is making your customers happy worth a little bit of money or a lot of money? 
And then the ability to say, if you want to make your customers happier, which pieces of the experience are you fixing? Are you fixing things in product? Are you fixing things around experiences? If you're fixing things in experiences, are you trying to make things faster? Are you trying to make people nicer? Are you trying to have them feel like the value is better? There's so many different directions a company can go to fix these things. We found that without a clear set of data around it, organizations spun. I called them just getting stuck in data debates. And when you're stuck in data debates, you don't do anything. And we started to build these robust competitive benchmarking back bases at the front end. And I was telling you in the conversation we had earlier that the, the first time I built one of these was for a credit card company. And we won't say specific names, but they were a credit card company that was, they knew they were behind the leaders in credit cards and customer experience. They were trailing American Express and Discover who were out in front, sort of have been for a long time. Yeah. And they wanted to understand how best to close the gap to that company. And they had been looking at their data only internal. And they had decided for themselves that where they wanted to invest the money were in the places where their customers were complaining the most. That was a very natural thing for them to be doing. It meant they were fixing things like collections, which was where they had the angriest set of customers. And we had a theory that the source of gap to American Express and Discover was actually where American Express and Discover were thrilling their customers, but where my client was merely making them okay. And that that missing positive gap actually mattered more than the places where they might be making their customers angrier than they should be. And so we built the first version of what's now an NPS prism to tease this out. And it's exactly what the answer ended up being. It turned out that the gaps around rewards and fraud on the positive side were actually more important than the negative gaps on things like collections. And it changed where they wanted to go spend their money. And so that convinced me that this type of fact base can really unlock the types of investment calls that organizations need to make. And it highlighted the sort of where the missing data was that was leading organizations to make bad decisions on these things, bad prioritizations. And that's where all of this essentially came from, is that we figured out that this mattered. We realized it was super hard and expensive to build these things, and a lot of organizations didn't want to do it. And PRISM is the way for us to be able to build these things at very large scale and sell them in consortium. And that's what the business is. Hmm. So you just said a lot. <laughs> there yes. is so there's so much to unpack there, and I, what I'd like to do is sort of spotlight any any gems that uh, sure. that we talk about, my guess, and and we talk about. And there's a couple of things that I want to uh, re- rewind back to a little bit. Um, one of which is you said to let them know kind of where they really stand and uh, what it's worth to make the change. So. Um, I, I just want to affirm you for a minute in, in this really stand because I think, and you tell me, you tell me what you think. I'm curious what you think about this statement, but I think it's easy for uh, C-suite executives to be in this trap of looking at traditional financial metrics 
to judge the health of their business. The health of their business has to be directly correlated to what their customers feel about the experience with them, how their what the health of their customer base is, because the numbers the numbers can mask or tell a story that is actually not indicative of how the health of the customer base. What would you say to that? I completely agree with that. I think that there are lots of ways to make the the current in quarter financials look better than is really reflective of the health of the business. And, you know, Fred Reichel describes this all all the time. Like at the end of the day, your biggest asset is the loyalty of the customer base that you have. Are your customers going to stay with you? Are they going to buy more? Are they going to bring their friends with them? At the end of the day, that is the surest sign of health for a business. And, And you're exactly right. Organizations can sort of fool themselves a bit and have them feeling like they are in a better position relatively than they actually are. So let's um, shed some light on that for a CEO who uh, may not be intentionally, uh, tr- or, you know, intentionally looking at, at, at the metrics and making a assumption about the health of his cu- or her customer base, but, you know, shed light on what are, what are some of the ways that traditional financial metrics can mask the actual health of the customer base? And what does NPS Prism do to unmask that for them? Yeah, I mean, well, one way is that in a lot of markets, you can sort of buy your way to more share. So this shows up in things like having to discount on pricing more. So this shows up in our auto instrument. Like you can tell which companies, in a sense, have to discount the cars to grow and which ones don't. Mm. And so if you're looking at traditional metrics like share, if you're not taking into account the pricing dynamics, you're sort of missing the big story. There are sort of more, there are ways to more profitable growth. And this is why we always talk about profitable growth instead of just growth. Because a lot of the times what you can do is you can sort of mask your way to share. If you're a cable company, you can be continually giving price discounts to your customers to have them not quit you and sort of get caught in a constant loop of, you know, offering price rebates, hoping that eventually you'll be able to get prices back up to where they're supposed to be, but you never make it. And so when you're looking at the traditional metrics like customer retention, those numbers are looking better than is reflective of the true business, sort of those Businesses that are leading on loyalty don't have to do those types of things. Those customers aren't looking. And so they're not looking to switch. And so you're less in that sort of pricing dynamic at the margin. But we see that across lots of lots of these industries where you can sort of paper it over. The other thing that, that a lot of organizations do is they view their competitor set too narrowly. So this comes up in a lot of the conversations with my banking clients, they, they tell themselves they're only competing with banks that look like them. And in a lot of these markets, there are new types of entrants. There are you know digital-only banks and banks that are focused on other elements. And you know at some level, customers are switching. And so I have a lot of traditional bank clients where they view themselves in a more positive way than they should because they're missing the 
you know, the, the customers at the other end of the tail who are leaving to go to alternative models. And if the alternative models are starting to take customers, then they matter. And if you're not looking at the world broadly enough, you sort of say, well, I'm winning, but you're really winning in a smaller and smaller pool if the, if the whole market is shifting to alternative models. Like that's what happened with the cable business with video. That's the, you know, I'm just as good as my other cable companies in providing video. And then the streaming market comes and takes over the whole thing. Mm. It's like being the best cable video provider didn't turn out to be anything that's made those companies really keep that piece of the business. And so the question is, how many things are there like that? Like, does banking switch? Like you saw banking lose the, you know, like the transfer business. Like it, the world just took a piece of banking. Like I'm going to do peer-to-peer transfers of money. Mm. And then all of a sudden... Venmo and PayPal come and essentially just take that whole piece of the market and they're going to do it better. And then they take a lot of that share away. Yeah. And, and I would add, uh, and tell me what you think, like uh, cyclical uh, market changes could also mask. You've got interest rates, right? Going, going up or down and it could make a bank uh, get high and mighty, but. Well, that's why yeah, that's why we always want relative scores. Hmm. Like the the idea, sure, in good in good times, like all the players in a market can go up, and that's right. not reflecting. What matters is your relative position to your customer's choice set. And so, if you're there, are some markets where being at NPS thirty is really good, and there are some markets where being at NPS thirty is really bad. And it's all you know. If you're if you there are lots of grocers in our data who are north of NPS 50, if you're a, a NPS 30 grocer, you're probably losing share. If you're a pharmacy at NPS 30, you might be doing just fine. Like there's some markets where the competitor set is just at a whole different level. Cars are like that, groceries like that. Like almost everybody has an NPS 50 plus grocer near them. Like it should be a very hard market to compete in if you're not up at that level. Yeah. And so, um, so where does NPS, NPS is in the name, uh, is NPS, I'm assuming is the core metric used in NPS Prism. Say more about that. Yeah. And and it's sort of at different levels. The way to think about it is we're decomposing that top level NPS score. So there ends up being NPS at really three different levels in the instruments that we built. There's sort of a brand level score. Then we have a product layer. Think of it in bank as how are we as a credit card company versus how are we as a bank versus how are we as a mortgage provider? Sort of there's a there's the ability to split that. And again, the competitor sets within each of those can be different because there's some standalone players that are only credit card companies or only mortgage companies. And so There are times where that's the level that you care about. And then we break it down even deeper into what we call journeys or episodes. So these are all the things that you can do with your bank. So it ranges from I deposit money to I dispute a fee to I transfer money to I open an account to I get advice. And in any one of our markets, we break the problem into 15 to 20 of those. So in grocery, it's about 
finding the things in the aisle, to getting help, to check out, to having to do a return. And we, and we end up with data that's at that level on a few dimensions. There is an NPS score, like we have an, you know, a, a journey NPS score for grocery checkout, which we can sort of split apart. But even before we get there, we can say, does checkout matter? Like how to like how important is checkout relative to the returns experience relative to the stocking out? I couldn't find the thing experience. And so the first thing that we do underneath the product is we break the journeys apart into the ones that are more detractor creating, more promoter creating, things that are happening at different incidence rates. And this enables a, a leader at an organization to sort of break apart the problem of, well, how do we interact with our customers over the a 30, 60, 90 day window? Like, what are they doing? They spend sometimes in disputes, they spend sometimes doing routine things, they spend sometimes doing advice related things, whatever it is. And you can sort of say, here's what matters. Here are the journeys that matter the most. And then what we can say is within the ones that matter the most, where are you good and not good? And that is the, it's the ability to break the problem into those component parts. And then the idea is the journeys can be the unit at which things get fixed. So if you're a bank CEO, you can say, here is what I want my fraud team to do. And here is what I want my rewards team to do. And here is what I want my account open team to do. And those are different units at which you can invent things, fix things, change policy rules, change processes, change the people related aspects. And that's how it becomes sort of much more tangible. So they're all, I always describe their scores, but at the end of the day, it's the why the scores are the scores that makes the tool unique and quite practical and tangible for our clients relative to what they might otherwise be able to do. Yeah. So that, that sounds like an invaluable tool for a leader to know um, where they should focus, where they should spend their money to right. either solve, as you described that go after the pluses or go after the minuses in, in a different way. One of the things that comes to mind is that if I were skeptical, I might say, well, um, love the love the fact that MPS Prism offers me data that I can use to make decisions that I can use to take action. But right. it's only as good as the quality of the data that I'm inputting. So can you, you tell us a little bit, because there's so much been said about surveys and bias and so yeah. forth. T tell us how how we can uh, be be assured that we're getting good data. It, it's a great question. So we survey into into research panels. So mm -hmm. there are panels that recruit respondents. There's obviously some difference in quality across all of those. We put a quality lens to who it is that we partner with. Um, but that's how we source the data. So we find people who are ready to respond to these types of things. Because if you just send these types of surveys out into the wild, you won't get good responses back. We are, you know, we do lots of quality checks on the data. And there are lots of things that you can do as the responses are coming in that sort of tell you, is this real or is this not real? And we're very good at throwing out unreal data. Basically, if it looks like the respondent is just clicking Two, 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 yeah. those types of things, that sort of yeah. thing gets thrown out. If they're putting 
junk responses into the open ends, we can get a sense of that. And we have ways to both do that with human as well as with AI around, are we getting high quality data? We can then check, like we know things like all the demographics and in information on the customers that are coming in. So one of the first things our clients will do is, does it look like we got their population back? Are we matching it on geography and income and age? Like, does it look like we found your population, yes or no? And so we do all of those things. And then what I always tell the clients at the end is that there are obviously going to be some biases left in the data, but however it is I'm getting your data is exactly the same way I'm getting your competitor's data. So if my data is saying you're slow or that your customers are getting answers of a particular type more often than your competitors are, we're getting those sort of, in a sense, a lot of those biases can sort of wash themselves out when you're doing the competitive lens on the data. And so, but we've, and, and I will tell you, the other thing is there are times that we get essentially operational metrics out of the data. Like we ask things like, how long did things take? And how did you do something? So one of, one of the measures we have in bank is we have a measure on the share of customers who try to do something digitally and it doesn't work to the point where they have to call in the call center to finish. We call that the digital failure rate. And I remember I had a bank client. So we had a measure on share of customers who tried to open an account digitally and ended up in the branch or call center to finish. And we had that number at 21% or whatever it was. It was really high. That's horrible. And, but the bank had just gone through what would have taken them 90 days. They went through all of their internal data to try to get that number. And it was right on our number. And it was, and there've been multiple times where we've sort of come in with these measures on channel mix and failure rates and percentage of customers who are getting yeses and nos. And every time we've done the cross check, the answer that comes back from our clients is, wow, yeah, that's super close. And so that gives us comfort that at the end of the day, we're getting real population back, which again, if you can't do that, then this isn't worth doing, but we're very confident at this point that we know how to do this in a way where it works. Yeah. And are you saying the data that you get is, is from source, but from the customers directly? Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the customers telling us yeah. how they, yeah. I mean, that's what this is. If you sort yeah. of, you know, it's funny. I had one of my cable comp clients years ago, they had a, they had an internal operational measure that they called installation success rate. This is always one of, and their internal measure was like in the 90s. And then we did one of these types of things and the customers were reporting installation success at like 50. And at first they're like, well, it means the customers don't know what they're talking about or it's weird data. But it turned out that when you interrogated their own internal customers and sort of said, all right, what's the difference? And it, it was a definitional problem. They were defining things as success that the customers didn't agree with success. They had a very simple, basically, if the cable box was on by the end of day one, it's a success. But the customers didn't view it as a success if you showed up five minutes left in an eight-hour window. They viewed mm. that as a failure. They viewed it as a failure if you tracked mud in the house. They viewed it as a failure if the cable went out within the first 72 hours. 
And by the time you totaled all those things up, the answer was, yeah, success rate around 50. And it's like, and so there, any time that, even, even the times when the answers come back different, it's not always true that the company's measure was right. Right. And more times than not, it's turned out that the customer's view of how things went turns out to be closer to accurate. Yeah, just to just to affirm that you reminded me of a uh, study that we did of um, the call center, the reason for the call. And uh, because there's there's the call center folks putting in sometimes they call it a wrap up code for things like the reason for the call. And that varied from what the customer thought the reason right. for their call was. So sure. then you got to ask yourself, which one which one really car- should carry more weight? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always describe it as imagine you showed your operational metrics to your customers, would they agree with you? Yeah. And it's things like, you know, we have measures on, like we ask customers in our surveys, well, how much of your personal time did it take to take care of something? And my clients will ask, well, when does the clock start? And I'm like, whatever the customer said it starts. And they, they want the clock to start the first time they pick up the phone and call. Yeah. And it's like, the whole thing started like this comes up with my cable clients. Like when your cable goes out, how much of your personal time does this take? It involves the time you're wandering around the house trying to figure out if it's you or if it's the cable company. And you're right. going to go and reset boxes and make sure the why. Like there are things you do before you get on the phone. And it's like so, and the customers view they they have a very wide definition of I'm ex, you know I'm extending effort right now. And that's actually the time that matters. And most of the internal, like the companies, they don't have a good read on that without actually going and asking the customers because the customers aren't always telling you. It's the same thing. We, we find all these populations of silent but unhappy customers. I keep dumping on cable, but there are lots of cable companies whose cable goes out, but they don't bother to call the cable company. They just sit around and wait for it to turn itself back on again. That doesn't mean they were happy. They're actually quite unhappy. They just feel like it's harder to call than to just sit and wait. And we see this with utilities. We see it with telco. Yeah. Just sort of unhappy people. And like that, those populations matter too. Yeah. I mean, if you think about um, what we're talking a little bit about now is, is perceived switching costs, you know, and if I'm telco, if I'm, I think about, you know, you, you mentioned um, Zelle and, and Venmo. Where new new options could become available to customers, right. wh- whatever industry they're in, and then you know you've got a customer who's really a hostage. They f- they feel like a yeah. hostage, right? I'm with you. I'm loyal on paper. I'm very loyal, right? But the minute there's some other opportunity, I'm out. I'm out of here, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it's funny. You know, I I saw there's a new documentary on BlackBerry. That's what I was like at the end of my BlackBerry usage. Like I wasn't allowed to switch to iPhone, but as soon as soon as I was allowed to, I switched, you know, like that day, like there, there, there are these, you know, there are these customers who sort of feel like they're a bit trapped, but I always describe it as customers will find their way to happiness. Yeah. Like they're at least always looking. And they will, and, you know, the banking example is at least part of the experience is going to get happier as soon as I have the opportunity to do that. 
but yeah. they're all looking for, you know, better experience. And it's either the company they're doing business with is going to get better or they're going to figure out how to go do it somewhere else. Right. Right. Well, let me, let me, um, let me make a statement and, and see if you can confirm it for me. And then I want to ask you another question. And that is, so what I understand is NPS Prism, by virtue of the way you shared it evolving, has developed this robust database and the tool to be able to, and, and really a, a cycle or wheel um, where you collect information, you can, you could then provide insights that are both relative in terms of the comparison against competitors, but inform leaders specifically on which problems to fix and therefore help them make the right decisions about what resources they should, they should spend money on to grow the business in a way that isn't just uh, discounting or on paper or temporary, but is really improving the lives of their customer base. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, I describe this as, as a, you know, it's a prioritization and performance improvement tool. Like if, if, if this is all just about scores, like I have some clients where I will bring back the data 90, 180 days later and their scores haven't moved and they'll be like, well, why haven't they moved? And I will turn the question back on them. I'll say, well, what, what's different? What improvements have you put in to market for your customers? So that they should like it better and the answer is well we haven't done very much and so this should be a feedback tool it's like if you've put in fixes on a b and c we can see whether or not they work there are some times that companies invest time to fix things that don't matter which can be super frustrating too when i had a like we we asked customers who were involved in a dispute with their bank, like how long the whole thing took. And the basic answer is that by the time it takes longer than 48 hours, you're super mad. And it's not that you get madder and madder and madder. It's like you've fallen off a cliff already. And so I've had a, I had a bank client where they had spent a ton of time and money trying to take 96-hour disputes and make them 72-hour disputes. And the problem is that that part of the curve is flat. Like you can extend all the effort you want. Those customers are still super mad. You have to get up over the cliff and take 72-hour disputes and turn them into 24-hour disputes, at which point you can go on. And so there are, sometimes there are companies where they feel like they've made things better, but it's not actually better because they didn't know the shape of the curve, essentially. And so the, the tool helps highlight those things too. It's like, as long as you're going to spend the effort, make sure you're spending in some place where the customers will care. So, so we know which lever to pull or push, but what this tells us is how much we need to. Right. Yeah. Yes. I always that's, describe it as how high is high enough. That's great. How nice is nice enough. How fast is fast enough. Like with the cable companies, by the time you've taken more than 10 minutes of your customer's time in a break-fix experience, you've already lost. Hmm. And a lot of these cable companies, the average hold time is like eight minutes. <laughs> it's like you've almost always lost them just because the, 
you know, in order to have this be something they're really not mad about, it really has to take up almost none of their time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, all right. So, um, very insightful. And so my question is you and I were talking before about marketing, marketing's role in all of this and, and how, how many millions of dollars are poured into marketing efforts. And one of the things you said to me is you can't solve this through marketing efforts. Say more about that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, there are some companies who feel like there, well, let's put it this way. There are some times in theory that marketing can solve this, but the pockets where that's true are where you're actually doing better than your customers think you are. In a world where that's true, you can sort of tout the things that you're doing and in theory, try to get credit for them. But most of the time, the issue is that you're actually not doing, you're, you're saying you're doing something, but your customers are experiencing something else. In a world in which that's true, sort of marketing to your customers to have them either feel better about the bad experience they have, or to have them feel like they're mistaken about their interpretation of the experiences doesn't help you. Like the way that this has to work in the end is you have to actually make the experiences better. And then you can market that you've made the experiences better. Like that works. I'll tell you, Discover looks like this. They're obviously a good customer company. But if you go back and look at Discover's ads, like they they had a whole bunch of ads around mispayment, for instance, which look like, you know, we'll treat you like you treat you. And it's like a customer calling themselves in a call center and having a super nice mispayment experience where the fee gets waived instantly. Mm-hmm. And it's like that they, they, it's true if you look in the data that their mispayment experience is better than everyone else's. It actually is. It already was. Like they'd already made the experience what it was. And then they go out into the market and they talk about it. Like that type of marketing works, but you can't reverse the order. Hmm. Like it has to actually be true. Hmm. And then you can, you know, then you can magnify it with marketing. But just, you know, just it, it's often the first place the company wants to try to go to. Hmm. Can't we just sort of apologize better? Can't we just sort of, the customers know what their experiences are. And just marketing your way out generally doesn't work. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so um, so you 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 really need to be in alignment with when you say something to to the market. You need to be in alignment with what the truth is about their experience. I always describe it. It's like a triangle where there's what you want to be in the market. There is what your customers think you are in the market, and there's what you tell the market you are. Hmm. Those three things need to, when those three things are aligned with each other, it's great. Like that's a healthy growing business. But there are times where there is a disconnect where you think think you're the easy company, but your customers don't agree. Or you think you're going to win on friendly, but your customers don't agree. And it's when you have these disconnects that you find the sort of the unhappy customers, customers looking to switch, companies not really making the improvements because they're, again, it's a fact-based miss. Like the company thinks they're doing A, the customers 
think it's something completely different. And the company just responds by touting that they're doing what they thought they were doing. And that doesn't end up working. Hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, so when you, when I think about the service that NPS Prism provides, um, you, you provide a tremendous amount of information that informs organizations what they should do, what they should prioritize, where they should spend their money and what changes to make. When they have, once they have that information, then they need to go make those changes. Right. So is that something that your uh, friends in, in Bain and company right. on the other side of the fence, then they step in and help out there? Is that right? Yeah, that's a bit of the handoff, obviously. Gotcha. So there's, there's, think of it, there's a prioritization phase, like given what the data is saying, what should we go do? Mm-hmm. Then there's the, I have to actually go do it. And oftentimes in order to go do it is hard. A lot of times these are organizational problems. This is, you know, we don't know how to get people in the company that are operating across functions to coordinate and cooperate appropriately to move fast enough. Those are the types of things that as Bain, we help organizations do all the time. And so there's often a handoff, which is now that you know what to do, go do it. And then they say, well, we can't, we don't know how to do that. Help us. And then that becomes a handoff to my colleagues on the consulting side of the business. Yeah. I often say, you know, this would be so much easier if the humans weren't involved. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) These are, but I'll tell you one of the important, one of the important lessons across all the industries is that the push to digitize everything is actually super risky. And so what we find is that there, there are some elements of the experience, again, applying the journey lens, the way to think about it is routine things can be digitized. Disputes and advice are very hard to digitize well. And a lot of organizations think they are getting the complicated out by just, no, 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 do it on the app. But no one wants to dispute a fee on the app. Because the problem is you can't say no nicely with digital. And so a lot of organizations in in places where you're going to give some substantial portion of your customers an answer that they don't like, you need to get human in and you need to figure out how to say no nicely. And so, and and the Prism tool is actually quite helpful at what I call it de-averaging the channel stores, which is true in you know, bank and insurance and in telco and everywhere where we've, and we've all had these experiences as consumers. It's like you tried to do something slightly hard in the app and it's like, well, that didn't work. And then you have to go hunt for the 800 number and start all over again. And like, that's, we all hate those experiences. And we see that all over the place in our data. So, so the idea of, of de-averaging is saying, well, they, they maybe shouldn't be all considered the same. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, digital for routine is different than digital for disputing. And so I have lots of clients. They just talk about how good digital is and how good call center is. And they say things like we should, the, the general strategy is take things out of the call center and move them to digital which also has a lot of cost benefit for organizations. It's clear why they want to. Yeah. 
And the answer is for some things, absolutely. And for other things, be really careful. Yeah, there, there's another gem right there from Jason is the push to digitize is risky. And you just you just hit on something that involves human emotions, like a dispute mm -hmm. um, yes. is, is not going to be handled well through artificial intelligence or some yeah. digital response. So that that's a that's a huge victory. Um, I, I'm curious at, for MPS Prism, what is your sweet spot when you think about your ideal customer? If they're listening here, or if someone knows of someone, what would be a sweet spot for you? Do you mean across industries or you mean people within? Yeah, across groups? industries. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we're not up and running everywhere yet. So we, we started in financial services. So we're very deep now across almost all of the sub verticals in banking. So banking, credit cards, wealth management, mortgage, annuities. And we're deeper in the US than we are globally, but we have banking products in around 20 to 30 countries around the world. So if you're if you're a bank and you want this type of information, we almost certainly already have it. And if you're an insurance company, we're also building out um, things in telco, in retail, um, automobiles, airlines, like we're up and running in around a dozen industry verticals now with the idea being that as we build, we often build the first versions in the US and then we build similar versions in other countries around the world. So Is but most of these are B2C at the moment. Like, hmm. and again, this comes back to the quality sampling thing. It's harder to get large sample in B2B than it is in B2C. So our sweet spot at the moment is sort of in large B2C in large economies, but we're pushing on the boundaries of that every day. Okay. And then, and then kind of related to that question, is there a certain minimum size that or a company that you like to work with? Well, we can get, so in bank, it's just sort of to give a sense of scale, we can get robust sample down to companies that are about 1% of the market in the US. So that's, you know, that gets you into the smaller of the mid-sized banks. And so that gets us pretty deep. Like you don't have to be one of the two or three largest banks for this to work. Um, and so we find obviously across industries sort of where that line gets drawn is different because there are some markets where like everyone's a reasonable respondent, like everyone has home internet, but not everyone, you know, goes to shop in a hardware store. And so there are some markets where the line gets drawn slightly differently, but the panels in the big countries are big enough that we can get down to fairly, you know, you don't have to be gigantic is the way yeah. I didn't think about it. But like, we're not gonna have data for some community bank in a small city either. Like that is way too small to be able to get their individual data for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that gives us some sense of who, who are your best targets and who, if they're listening, who might, you might be able to help sure. us. Yes. We're always happy to talk. And if we already have the live data, always happy to open up the instrument and show, show them here's what we have. Here's what your customers are saying to you. And, and I got a sneak peek uh, of that last time we were talking and it is, it is a, what, so much robust data, you would think it would be, very complex and actually you've got it visually 
simple, beautiful, and uh, remarkable. Well, so, thank you. Yeah. So one last question for you before we get your contact. Sure. And, um, this is more on a personal level. I'd like to ask my guests, uh, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a great question. And again, I'd, I'd probably answer this question differently for what I would tell my 20-year-old self about work versus personal life type things. Mm -hmm. But in work, I think the key, what I would tell my 20-year-old self is always work on something that you find passionate mm. and, and always look to work with people that you find inspiring and energizing to work with. And that is something that I've definitely found during my time at Bain and in the time building the NPS prison business. This is something that really quite energizes me and I get to work with amazing people every day. And those are the things that make me continue to want to get up and go to work every day. And I think that that's something I would have reinforced with myself younger in life as I was trying to figure out what I might want to do for a living. Okay. And then I'm going to, since you, you mentioned it, is there anything that you're willing to share? And we may have to cut this part out <laughs> about <laughs> advice you would give to yourself on a personal level. You have to leave time for, you have to leave time for family and you have to leave time for fun, that there is balance in life. And at the end of the day, it's going to be about the people around you that matters the most. And if you're, you know, if you, if you end up too overweighted in any one part of your life, sort of none of it ends up working. And so making sure that you're always in balance is one of the things that I would definitely tell my 20 year old self. And there's a, there's a time for family and friends. There's time for fun. There's time to work. Um, and you have to get the balance across those three correct. Well said. Great, great advice. Tons of gems. Um, I'm, I'm excited for what you're doing to our profession in, in the customer experience world and, um, and taking us to the next level and, and making it, um, you know, so accessible. The, what, what, you, what you built and the model you built is, is really so accessible. And I believe that when we, when we improve the customer experience, we improve the lives of people in the world. I, I really keep coming back to that. And as you know, mm. Fred Reichel has been a mentor of mine for, for a very long time now. And that's at the end of the day, that's what this is about. All of these organizations should be improving the lives of their customers every day. And I think when you do that, everybody's happier. And I, you know, happy to play my part in helping everybody get there. Amen. Amen. All right. So if, if someone uh, was listening and you piqued their curiosity or they just want to reach out to you, sure. what's the best way to connect? Yeah. Again, NPSPRISM.com. It's okay. sort of the, you, you can find sort of access to me, access to our business. There are ways to let me and my team know that you want to take a look at data. And obviously we're always, you know, if, if, if you think that we have your data already certainly always happy to to talk and, and it's easy to show you what we have and how you might get access excellent jason thank you so much for being on the show for sure 
thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com.